Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Environmental Social Justice. Today, I have a special guest, Dr. Frank Luntz. He is a political and communications professional, and he also coined the term climate change in preference over global warming. So welcome. Thank you. I'm sure that most people are not happy about it, even though they use the terminology now, and it represents a complete change of heart, Yes. change of science, change of knowledge, change of wisdom. And it's something that I talk about as often as I can, because people do change their minds over time. And not only should we welcome it, we should try as best we can to reach those we disagree with. Yes. Because you bring them over to the to the light side and you can make a difference. Absolutely. And one of the things that um, I've talked about frequently is get, climate change becomes so political and everyone's got an agenda. Everyone has their sides. And we're trying to bring people together into the middle because that's the only way we're going to solve our problems. And actually, the way that you do that is not by calling it climate change by calling it simply climate. The moment you say climate change, you now politicize the issue, how people hear it. Whether or not you mean to do it, it happens that way. If you talk about addressing climate, you've got 85% of Americans that want to do it right now. That's as good as it gets. But the moment you bring up climate change, that 85% drops to 60%. So it's by a simple dropping of one word and you change how people hear it. Second, is that we know about the human impact on it. But if you remind people that we could have a cleaner, safer, healthier world, not just not just uh, America, but across the globe, yes. cleaner, safer, healthier beats sustainability by more than 20 points, 20 percentage points. So I'm now trying to advocate a message, a language that allows those who are opposed to legislation, because we have agreement now, the public does say, even a majority of Republicans, that climate is real and that humans are having an impact, a negative impact on it. The public says, yes, I agree with that. The question is the legislation. And if you emphasize the positive nature to the country and to us, if we address it, not the negative, yeah. not the Greta type doomsday, Yes. But you take a positive approach, many more people want to jump on board. No, I agree with you. Um, The whole reason for my webcast is everyone's screaming at each other. Everyone's yelling at each other. I started it when a woman approached me saying, please don't hate me. I still use paper towels. And I thought there are way worse things you can do than use a paper towel. And that's when I realized the messaging is just belittling people, yelling and screaming at people. And we have to have a positive uh, point on this. I know a lot of young people who think the world's just going to end. So why bother? Um, we need to fix this and we're only going to fix it by working together. And it is a global thing. We need to get rid of party lines. We need to get rid of so states. Let's add another phrase. It's yeah. not just working together. It's working together side by side. Yes. Working together in partnership sounds businesslike. Working together side by side is you, me, and everyone else who's watching right now. It's a simple addition. It just it makes the language more visual and more impactful. And it's more likely that people jump in. It's one of the reasons I think you can't see it there. But I've got notes of language that I want to promote. For example, you call it evidence-based. Evidence is for the lawyers. Yes. Most of us, fortunately, are not lawyers. Yes. We want facts, not evidence. So you take a fact-based approach is much stronger than an evidence-based approach. The consequences of failure. If I use the word consequence, you'll think about how it impacts you and your family. Yes. 
It's the most powerful word because it brings it to light in a graphic way. Uh, and the impact, it's not about reforming our laws or changing our laws. What is the most meaningful, measurable impact we can have? Meaningful. So you feel it. Measurable so you can hold people accountable for it. And impact because it's what we're seeking in our day-to-day -day lives. You put those three words together. One more example. Healthy or health. Yes. It is not part of the climate message in Europe. It's only just becoming part of the climate message here. When something is healthy, healthy schools, healthy neighborhoods, a healthy discussion with us, that means it's working. That's success. And I want that health message to be part of climate. The more that it's about the environment and our impact on the environment and the environment's impact on us, the stronger the message becomes. And a healthy impact, healthier lives, is the best way you can communicate the need, the essential need of climate legislation right now. Brilliantly said. I do have to say, um, small changes in how you use your terminology will have lasting effect. Correct. People coming together side by side will have lasting effect. How do we get people to do that initial buy-in? Is it just the use of the terminology or is it explaining to someone, this is actually happening, this is real, the science is there, how do you how do you bring them in? Oh, visually, not verbally. Visually, okay. And I realize that people who watch this, who know what I do, probably most of them don't like me because of language. The truth is, they should not like me because of visuals. The fact is, young people under age thirty-five get their information visually, not verbally. That's true. And the the strongest visualization of the threat of climate is actually not the polar bear anymore. It's the polar bear with the polar bear cub. Yes, because it's intergenerational. We have a question that viewers cannot see, but I'll show you it or I'll talk about it. Which is the most important consequence, the concern or or the impact that really gets you to act on the environment? And it's not about the impact on the globe or on the economy or on society. It's about the impact on your children and grandchildren. Yeah, we need to humanize climate for our own families and our own communities. That's how you motivate people to act. And that means a language, a lexicon that acknowledges that and focuses on that personal impact to me. Okay. No, the, the strongest relationship, human relationship is not husband, wife. It's not parent, child. It's not brother, sister. It's grandparent, grandchild. They both have the same enemy. First point, which is a joke. <laughs> But grandparents will sacrifice anything for their grandkids because they want to get it That's right. True. And the people who are most skeptical of the impact of climate are older people, people over age 60. Yes. Many of them with grandchildren. So you don't just focus on the kids. You focus on the grandkids because every grandparent will sacrifice everything for the grandchildren. How very interesting. And that's how you motivate people to act. That's a that's an extraordinary motivation because I mean I can speak from my mother and her interaction with her grandchildren. She will do anything for them. She will sacrifice her own life for them. Um, whether or not that was true for her own children, who knows? <laughs> no, it probably wasn't. And and again, it goes back to the same enemy. But we learn about it. And I'm going to read you sure. just one statement. And you start with a question, not a not a comment, a question. What kind of world will we leave for our children tomorrow? Our children and our grandchildren tomorrow. It opens up a question and it allows the 
respondent or the participant or the audience to answer it in their own language, with their own visualization. We need to preserve and protect mm -hmm. two Ps. It's an alliteration. Our planet today, it's planet, not world, because it's more tangible. So we can give our children and grandchildren a cleaner, safer, healthier tomorrow. That is the best way to bring people in. Well, that's also very reminiscent of um, the seventh generation. So Native Americans, whatever they did on their land, they thought about how will this affect my children, but also seven generations down the road? How will they be affected by my actions today? And I think we forgot that philosophy in the past 50, 60 years when we wanted things fast and quick and cheap and easy. But the issue for that is to accept where we are rather than where we should be. True. Where we are is that it's hard enough to get people to think for their grandchildren. It's hard enough to get people to think 50 years ahead. You're asking them to think 150 years ahead, and that's not going to happen in a society that's only 250 years old. True. Therefore, well, uh, you taught me something, and I appreciate that, and I respect their commitment. But if I'm trying to move people here, I can do two generations, not the children, the grandchildren. That's as far as I can go. Okay. Americans, when you ask them what defines the future, they're split between 10 and 20 years. They don't know 100 years or more. Is that why Europe is so far ahead of us with dealing with you know, emissions and being you know, renewable energy and being more progressive? Because we're kind of behind the rest of the EU on that. Uh, we're behind it, but some of that is what happened in World War II. They've seen the consequence of, of bad global behavior. We have not. They've lived through the complete destruction of their societies. We have not. So they are more willing to act in a more meaningful and measurable way because they know what happens when they don't. And we're not there yet. That said, we developed faster than they did. We created a successful economic society faster than they did. Our economy is stronger than their economies, even when you add them up all the different countries. Okay. So there is a role for us to play. We've benefited from it. It also means we have a responsibility to it. And I'm pretty proud of Europe in its role in this. And I think we have a lot to learn from them. And I think we should be operating together, yes. side by side, because we know it's not happening in India. And we know it's not happening in China. No, it's so it's going to be up to us. But there's a challenge there. Because there are so many Americans who will say, yeah, I'm all on board. If China's on board, why do we weaken our own economy? Why do we weaken our own manufacturer and the structure by which we operate? Why do we weaken ours when China's not willing to do theirs? When they're, we can take all these coal plants offline, yeah. but we have no impact when China's putting even more coal plants online. So, and that's why, again, it's the language. We need accountability, transparency, and enforcement accountability so if you break the rules you're held responsible transparency so that we know yeah. that when they're breaking the rules and enforcement so that when you say to a country you're going to be held responsible for this they actually are and there's not enough of that communication now would that be a policy issue where they have to issue policies that you will be held accountable for the following like esg environmental social governance a lot of banks kind of said they were going to do things it resulted in the SEC um, investigating Goldman Sachs, Deutsche Bank got raided. Um, they're now being held accountable. And the SEC is now overhauling everything and uh, doing regulations on ESG because you have to actually 
follow through with what you said you were going to do. Which is why they're not pledges, and this is my disagreement with COP, they're not pledges. A pledge is your intent. Yes. They're commitments. It's meant to be about a result, not intent. Yes. And by calling it a pledge, they actually weaken the communication by which they were trying to get all countries on board. And I'm sorry for that because that was a fundamental, serious flaw in what COP26 did. And that's the 26th one. And I, you know, I talked to a girlfriend who was there from the beginning and she said it was the first time that businesses were brought into the fold of being, you know, um, environmentally friendly, knowing about renewable energy, acting on your own without being forced. But more importantly, it's still more talk. It's still more discussion and surveys and research. We kind of know what needs to be done. So what's that trigger going to take to actually act? It's going to take global leadership of people who are willing to articulate that this isn't in fact a sacrifice, that this is much more of an investment. Sacrifice is about uh, giving something up. In the work that we have seen in climate, it's what you get, not what you give up that matters. That is very important. That is a way, that's a brilliant new way of thinking about it. A lot of this bothers me because I think that the organizations that are so active in this, they, they like to flog themselves. They like to, we're going to, we're going back to nature. We're going to, we're going to reduce our electricity. It's all about giving stuff up and make no mistake. You can't do this pain-free, sure. but if that's what you're leading with, you're never going to get people to follow you. And they need to know the benefit, not just the cost. And there's this desire among many environmental groups to basically beat themselves up to demonstrate their support, that they're for real. And that's not how our brain works in this country. We have to have the carrot and the stick. There has to be a balance in everything that we do. We can't just go off energy right now, particularly with what's going on in Russia and Ukraine. And make no mistake, if we're not balanced in our approach, we got two issues that are happening both at the same time. We have to act because we're at the tipping point climate-wise. We see this every day across the globe. But we're also at a tipping point to what consumers are willing to do on a day-to-day -day basis. And we're going to have a problem in October, November. Russia turns off its natural gas. We don't allow people to explore here. And then the price gets out of control. Yes. And there has to be an approach that respects both situations at the same time. I'm a huge fan of, um, I've referred to it as energy diversification. So not just electric, but I believe in hydrogen. I did have a uh, rather intriguing conversation about nuclear. I used to be very much against nuclear and the woman I spoke to was very, very knowledgeable. And it's actually very different now, the nuclear reactors than what I grew up with. This is not the, your Chernobyl's nuclear reactor. That's, I'm like, this isn't Three Mile Island. This isn't the China syndrome. This is actually a very different process of waiting, doing it and very little radioactive waste actually, because that was another concern. It's small little pellets, not just huge amounts of drums of contaminated material. So we do have the ability to provide energy. We just need people to actually implement and act and get it done. And hopefully with these um, all these new climate initiatives coming through, that will provide the funding and the incentive to get these things done because there are many brilliant people working on these things. They just need to be able to take that step forward. I, I, the, 
to be factual, most of this does not need an incentive. The only thing is the U.S. has not appro approved a new nuclear facility. No. And it is new nuclear. It is not the same technology. As you say it's not the same process. And we are basically putting ourselves in an impossible situation. We're closing off some energy without bringing other aspects of energy on board. Yes. We are saying that you have to use less which is impossible. We're using more. <laughs> and as our economy comes back on, we don't want to choke that off because if you put us, if you ask people to actually give up their quality of life, they will look you straight in the eye and they will say, no, Yes. that is not a strategy for success. It's a, it's very hard to ask people to give themselves particularly when they think they've given things up for the last 10 or 15 years. And they'll ask you, how much more do we have to sacrifice? It's easy for us. We come from an upper middle class background. We're, we're, we're taken care of. Uh, there are people who every day struggle. And right yeah. now, 50% of Americans have trouble every week, every month, or even every quarter making ends meet. And you're going to tell them they're going to pay even more money. Yeah. They're going to have to give even more and get even less, that ain't going to work. No, not at all. Not, I mean, one of the things to touch on with people giving things up over and over again, it comes to this point where it's like, I can't give anymore. I, I'm tapped out. And we talk about this with the drought as well, is how much can we conserve on water before it's just basic needs that you're trying to cut back on. With energy, we need to, we need to create new forms of energy and not just rely on electric, not just rely on solar, not just rely on wind because there are going to be times where that's not always going to work. Our infrastructure needs a lot of work. I mean, we have blackouts all the time in California because there's the, you know, infrastructure's not there. There's not enough energy for everybody. And I think that's, you know, the point I'm trying to make is how do we get that initiative rolling? How do we get people to do what needs to be done? But that's the language of working together side by side, yeah. rolling up your sleeves, actually getting into finding genuine solutions that are long-term meaningful and measurable the words do matter yes they do. because in the end if people won't pay attention to them then we will fail yeah. and and we know we have a problem we don't think it's a crisis we think it's an emergency crisis is something that's permanent an emergency comes goes we have reached the point of an emergency i want i beg climate activists to be a little bit more in control of their messaging because in order to get legislation in Washington, 60% unfortunately is not enough. 60% public support. You need 70% because you need a majority from all three, from the two political parties and from independents. Therefore, you soften a little bit, just a little bit in the extremism of communication and you replace it with just a little bit of how we all will benefit if we make the right decisions very sage advice actually and you you are you know you're the word guy who says it's not what you say it's what they hear the problem is that they're not listening so i've got this republicans are more difficult than democrats which by the way is different in europe uh in the uk the conservatives are all on board. It's labor that's hostile. Really? Because they're more likely to work in factories. They're more likely to work in industries, in less clean industries. Okay. They're working class. 
So the labor voters are the ones who are hostile to making decisions on climate. It's the left that is the problem and the right is more likely politically to be engaged in this discussion. But one of the things we looked at for Trump voters is the idea of why should I trust you? They're less likely to trust the scientists, much more likely to trust farmers, much more likely to trust people who actually work outside, and much less likely to trust the science and the scientists who research it. So it all has to be about credibility. Yes. And that requires a different level, a different sort of communication. So we just need to do better. But need- you, you can do better. Yeah. Um, it's you start with why do I benefit? And then you go to why does America benefit? And the language behind it is I'll give you a couple more here. I've not done this before. <laughs> no, I appreciate the, the information. This is actually very important that people learn how to communicate. It's not uh, um, emissions, it's pollution. Yes. I started my career in pollution. Well, then tell your colleagues who will watch this, stop talking about emissions because emissions is a piece. It's it's not good, but it's not awful either. Pollution is all awful. Yeah. And we don't accept any, we, we can accept small emissions, but we don't accept, accept small pollution. Just by changing it from emissions to pollution, you change how people hear you. Well, that's interesting you mentioned that because when I started, everything was pollution, 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 contamination, and then emissions, people started using that terminology. So I guess reverting back to pollution is the, it really the strong messaging that needs to happen. Correct. So people can see that this is actually a very severe, dire emergency that we're in, crisis rather, where we need to fix it. Correct. And the pollution, contamination, particulate matter goes in the lungs, people get sick, and then that's a whole social justice issue as well with people in certain communities where they're around the pollution more frequently, they have long-term lung issues and then health issues overall. So it does come full circle. Another example is, I know they like to talk about smart energy or an intelligent approach. That's insulting to people who don't agree. And there are intelligent people that challenge uh, where we are right now. The best way to communicate is by taking a responsible approach. And by doing nothing, by definition, is irresponsible. Yes. That, once again, is changing the lexicon of climate activists to something that is more effective and more impactful. That is very important. We need we need more we need people to be more effective and more impactful because a lot of people I talk to, they're very angry. They want things to change, and so they have a meeting, and they have a study. And they, you know, consultants do some work and then they write a paper. And we have lots of papers that tell us what needs to be done. So now we've reached the point where hopefully with this bill that's being going to be passed, hopefully that will take place. It's quite a bit of money. I believe it was, if I have my numbers in front of me, $369 billion is on the table. That would be impactful. That's a serious commitment and it's a commitment, not a pledge. And we need to see what the results are not just about solutions and not about ideology but there needs to be accountability transparency and enforcement um transparency i'm a huge fan of i think that that needs to happen more frequently than it has been in the past 
I do know a lot of people that are working in this field that have gotten corporations to be more transparent with their emissions pollution, which isn't you know impactful for people to understand what's going out there, what's happening, what needs to change. So I think people are beginning to embrace this. We just need more of a heftier push. And um, I thank you for your time. This uh, is remarkable. <laughs> I appreciate the tone and the questions because this is about getting it done. Yes. It's not about per performance. It's not extreme. Yes. It's attempting to solve a problem that is now an emergency and that affects every single person who will see this podcast. So my yeah, pleasure. Every single person on the planet. I mean, this is side by side working together because there's no boundaries. Pollution doesn't care if you live in the United States or Canada or London. They don't care. Or what side of Sunset Boulevard you live on. Yeah, or what side of Sunset you're on. It's everywhere, folks. This is happening to all of us. So thank you very much for your time. I honestly appreciate it. Very grateful. And guys, I'm Wendy Nystrom, host with Environmental Social Justice. You guys have a great day.